following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Friends, if you'll grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 this morning, the second letter of Paul to Timothy in chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 13 this morning. However, I'll start reading in verse 1 and then read through verse 13 and then we'll get into our text. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we continue our study of 2 Timothy here, and we find ourselves today looking at these verses, verses 8 through 13. We find some of the most just impressive verses as they're jam-packed with not only amazing biblical truths, but they are there that inspire us, convict us, and most of all, they bring much, much glory to God. I pray that as we look at our text today, we'll see the reality that Christ truly is all things to the believer. Paul saturates this text with reminders of who Christ is for us as believers. Notice Jesus Christ, as he he says here, he says, Remember Jesus Christ. God's word is not bound. Salvation that is in Christ Jesus. He talks about all these things And as he looks at verses 11 through 13, he points directly to Christ. And he says, look at the faithful one. Look at the one who will do all things. So for today, I pray that as we look at these scriptures found here, we'll make much of Christ together, for he is boldly and profoundly shown here in our text. Also, we'll remember the glory of the salvation that comes only through him. To help us navigate our text for this morning, I invite you to see four overarching points. First, we're going to look at the superiority of Jesus Christ in verse 8. Second, we will see the strength of the word in verse 9. Third, I invite you to see the sustenance in God's calling as we look at verse 10. And finally, in verses 11 through 13, we will see the security of God's promises. So let us turn our attention first then to the superiority of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. 
Paul begins this section again with an imperative, a command. We've seen him do this throughout the text, right? We remember he said, be strengthened, entrust, think over. He's giving Timothy these series of commands of things that he is to do. He's telling him that not so much in a, a rebuking or a harsh way, but he's saying these are what you need to go out into this ministry, to go out and do what you have been called to do. You must be strengthened. You must entrust. You must think over. And now he says, remember. Remember. It's an active command. It's something that's supposed to be ongoing for Timothy. Not this one and done thing that we've talked about, right? There's so frequently our, our world is set around, if I did it once, I've done it, and it's, that's it. But Paul says, Timothy, repeatedly, remember, remember, remember. And what is he to remember? What's supposed to be his main focus? Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I absolutely love how Paul brings Timothy back to Christ. Preachers everywhere should be doing that day in and day out as they're preaching God's word is bringing the people back to Christ. Believers, day in and day out, should be bringing all things back to Christ. Paul, throughout the text, gives examples of Christ working in his own life, right? He talks about himself, but he doesn't use that as a do this as your hope. He doesn't look to himself and say, follow me and I will be your guide and your hope. No, he does it as a means of encouragement, but never the means of sustainment. Christ is truly superior in the ministry of Paul. It's not about him. It's not about Paul. We'll see that Paul points to his imprisonment, but then he talks about that only in reference to what God's word is doing. Paul says, Christ is the only way in which the believer and the minister and every person who has come to trust in this, this Christ will be sustained. It's the only possible way. Remember, we're just coming out of Paul giving the command to Timothy that he must suffer as a good soldier for Christ. And he gives examples of what that looks like. He says a soldier doesn't get entangled in civilian pursuits. Athletes, they compete according to the rules. Farmers, they're hardworking that they might receive the first fruits. These are areas that Paul himself strived towards. Paul himself wanted to be the best soldier. He wanted to be the best athlete. He wanted to be the best farmer. He wanted to work diligently with a main focus in mind. But he doesn't tell Timothy, now look at me. He doesn't tell Timothy, look at me, because Paul also realizes that he's human and he's going to fail and he's going to have mistakes and he's going to mess up. And if Timothy puts his trust in Paul as his example... He's not going to be able to do it. No, Paul turns Timothy's attention to Jesus himself. Jesus was the perfect soldier who fought the greatest and most significant battle in all of history. And he was victorious. Jesus was the greatest athlete that ran the race and he won the prize. He lived a perfect, obedient, sinless life. Living by the rules so as to be crowned in eternal glory. Jesus was the perfect farmer. He sowed the perfect seed that would go out and he reaped his harvest. And he's continuing to do so till this day. Unlike the farmer who has a season, Christ continues to reap the harvest of the work that was done in his life. Friends, remember Christ. He is everything. He did everything that you cannot he lived the perfect life of a soldier, the perfect athlete, the perfect farmer. He is all. Justin recently turned me on to this book by Philip Henry. And I got to read just these. He had recommended it and I was like, wow, this is incredible. Just reading the table of contents from this book. Christ all in all. I don't even have to read any of the like, words from the actual book. Just reading this, this uh, table of contents will give you everything you need to know. Christ. These are all areas where 
Christ is for the believer, for Paul, for Timothy, and for you here this morning. Christ is the foundation. Christ is our food. Christ is our root. Christ is our raiment, our clothing. Christ is our head, our hope, our refuge. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our light. Christ is our life. Christ is our peace. He is our Passover. Christ is our portion. Christ is our propitiation. Christ is our freedom. Christ is our fountain. Christ is our wisdom. Christ is our way. Christ is our ensign, our standard, our flag, our leader. Christ is our example. Christ is the door. Christ is the dew. Christ is the sun. Christ is our shield. Christ is our song. Christ is our horn. Christ is our sanctification. Christ is our supply. Christ is our resurrection. Christ is our redemption. Christ is our lesson. Christ is our ladder. Christ is our truth. Christ is our temple. Christ is our ark. Christ is our altar. And finishing off, Christ is our all. Amen. Christ is everything for the believer. He fills everything that you must need. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ fulfills everything. There's nothing that is left. He gives you all that you need. He gives you everything that you need to live and to do his will. Friends, this is the Christ that Paul is calling on Timothy to remember. The Christ that is literally all in all. That is everything to the believer. This doesn't apply to just Timothy. It applies to you. How incredible. Almost 2,000 years later, this is the same Christ. Nothing's changed. Matthew, or, uh, Philip Henry had written this book back in, I believe it was like the 1600s, and it's the same Christ today as it was then. This glorious truth that we hold on to, found in God's word, has been the same. There's no change. As Timothy looks out on this hard and perilous ministry, as he looks out on the various trials, Paul says quite simply, remember Christ. And by so doing, you'll have all you need to preach him faithfully with boldness, with courage, with strength. Remember Christ because he has everything that you will need and he will indeed sustain you till the end. And believer, that goes the same for you. Be encouraged that as you step into this world, as you look out on the various challenges and trials, remember Jesus Christ. Paul continues and he says, Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Who is this Christ? The one who is everything. Who is this? He is the one who is risen from the dead, as we just read earlier from John. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15 again, just a little further down in verses 17 through 19. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also all who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul is not simply just calling on Timothy to remember the event of the resurrection, to remember the fact that Christ had risen. No, Paul desires that Timothy remember that Christ is indeed alive today. It wasn't a one-time event that he was pointing him to and saying, remember Christ risen back there, over there at that time. He's saying, Christ is risen for you today, Timothy. Christ is risen for you today, believer. He is alive and he is well. He is reigning. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And everything, he might be preeminent. Romans chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many believers. Many brothers. 
Through the death and resurrection, Christ has indeed set us free from sin and the punishment of that sin, death. Friends, Paul is calling on Timothy and calling on us now to renew our minds through remembering that the Christ which we have come here this morning to worship is indeed alive. He's not dead. He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't just gone off to live in some crazy place out there. He's alive. He is in heaven. He is reigning. And this is the God that we worship. This is the Christ that we look to. And he continues, he says, the offspring of David. Paul points out this beautiful truth of just who Jesus is. He is indeed the offspring of David. Remember Luke chapter 1, he says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Talking about Christ. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus was indeed the offspring of David. He was born in the lineage of David. But so what? What difference does that really make? Why do we care? That's a good question to ask, right? Why, do we, why are we concerned with his lineage? Because it points to two things. One, it points to his humanity. Christ was indeed both truly God and truly man. By pointing to Christ's humanity, Paul is giving Timothy and us a beautiful and powerful reality. Remember Hebrews chapter 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. One who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, but is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. We have a high priest that knows intimately our struggles. He knows intimately everything that we experience because he was tempted, yet without sin. He suffered, but he endured. And so, Paul is calling on Timothy to first remember that and to say, look at this Christ that you believe in. This one who is in this offspring of David. He knows what you are going through. Be encouraged. However, it's not just that, and it doesn't just stop there. Why? Why does he fall in this lineage of David? Because it was a part of the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. I'm going to turn back, if you want to join me, in John chapter 5. I'm going to look at verses 39 through 46. John chapter 5, verses 39 through 46. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Talking about Christ. He's talking about himself. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is no one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Christ says all of these Old Testament promises, all of these scriptures are pointing to his coming. Luke chapter 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Second Corinthians chapter one, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter amen to God for his glory. Paul wants Timothy and he wants all of us to see that by saying that he is in this lineage of David, it's more than just a neat fact. It's more than a cool history. It's pointing, one, to his humanity, but secondly, to the fact that he has fulfilled every Old Testament promise. He was truly the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one that would come to die on a cross for your sins, that would be then risen from the dead, that would break the bondage of sin, that you might be able to have eternal life with God. 
And Paul finishes, he says, as preached in my gospel. These were not some musings of an elderly man in the first century. Some people will look at the Bible as a whole and will just say, well, that was just a bunch of old men a long time ago. They didn't even probably know what they were talking about. Some probably would say half of them probably lost their mind. But that wasn't the case. Paul is saying these are... These, are, these words are the things that I've been preaching in my gospel. These are the things that I have received from Christ himself as an apostle. Remember, he talks about in chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul isn't just musing about some random thing that came to his mind. No, because if Paul had done that, it wouldn't be about Christ. He wouldn't be musing about Christ. If anything, his musings would have been completely separate from Christ because his whole desire prior to being brought into the light, being saved by Christ on that road to Damascus was to what? Destroy Christ. To destroy his church. To destroy his word. Paul is quite simply laying out what he knew to be true and to be factual. This is God's word, and so we can hold on to that, knowing that it is true and that it is factual. That everything in it is true. None of it's a lie. None of it's something that we don't have to listen to. All of it has a meaning and a purpose, and it is God's word for us. Well, friends, we see that Christ is truly superior in all things in the life of the believer. Let us now affix our attention on verse 9 as we look at the strength of God's word. In verse 9, For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. As we see, Paul has been suffering. We know that he is currently imprisoned in Rome, and we know, as I read a few weeks back, Paul has suffered brutally. He's been mocked and ridiculed. He's been run out of various places. He's been beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked. He even says that there were times where he thought he was going to die. And right now he's bound in chains as a criminal. But notice, he doesn't stop there. He's not even really concerned with his own suffering. He just uses this as a jumping point to then point us back to God and to his word. And he says, but the word of God is not bound. Paul contrasts the fact that he is bound with chains as a criminal. With the very word of, but the very word of God is not. You know what's ironic of this? The, the irony of all of this situation is that Paul is being locked up by these men that truly believe that by locking him up, locking up other Christians, killing Christians, trying to quote-unquote stamp this out, it would put an end to God's word. The true belief of all of these men who were seeking to destroy the church was that if we just kill enough of them, if we just imprison them so that they don't talk to anybody we just kind of muzzle them and keep them quiet, God's word will stop. But then Paul says, the irony of it is, as I'm sitting here in chains, the word of God is not bound. We've heard of the numerous stories throughout history of the church under persecution growing exponentially. We've even seen it recently, right, with COVID and some of the restrictions that happened and how churches were shut down. But what happened to many churches that stayed open? They grew. People started to ask the question, why? Why do these people gather in the midst of what is being said to be this scary, scary illness? Why do they keep doing this? What is the reason for their gathering? Paul himself saw that in this case, this Many times where there'd be people coming in to get rid of him and get rid of all the believers. And yet somehow they just kept appearing. They wouldn't stop. They couldn't put an end to it. The word of God cannot and will not be restricted. 
no matter how hard a person may try. Similarly, God's word is also not dependent on our protection. God's word is powerful and strong in and of itself, and it doesn't need us to protect it. God's word is truly active and alive. Hebrews chapter 4, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Friends, God's word is truly active. It is going forth despite what anyone throws at it. It doesn't matter how many darts are thrown at it. It doesn't matter how many times people try to stop it. It's going forth. It is moving in the hearts of the believers. Even in places where the Bible is banned, where there's limited copies, God's word goes forth. The truth of the gospel goes forth. People are being saved by the spread of God's word. What a blessing for us as believers. We can know that God's word is indeed alive. It's not dependent on us. That doesn't mean that we have been excused, right? We still have a command to go forth and share this gospel, but we don't also have to worry because God is indeed sovereign. His word will go forth and it will do what it is sent out to accomplish. Brothers and sisters, we've seen that Christ is indeed superior in all things. We see that God's word is strong and alive. Let us turn our attention now to verse 10 as we look at this sustenance in God's work. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Therefore, for this reason, Paul's pointing back, right? He's saying, because God's word is not bound... And because he can look to Christ as all, as his all, he can now say, I endure everything. He submits under God's sovereignty that has led him to the very suffering that he is in. He doesn't begrudgingly accept it. He doesn't just say, well, I guess I have to deal with this now. He doesn't wallow in the mire of his imprisonment. No, he endures through it. He endures through it. He endured through countless beatings and imprisonments and mockery and hardship. Times where he literally thought he would die at any moment. But why? Why does he endure? Why does he suffer as a good soldier? And he says, for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Notice he's not talking about those who had already been saved. Rather, for those that would be saved that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is specifically talking about those that would be saved, not by necessarily him, but through God's word being made manifest in the life of Paul, through the proclamation of his word by Paul. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Pointing again to this sense of elect, there's an elect. Romans chapter 8, verse 29-30, right? We, we know this. For those whom he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul's suffering is just a part of God's eternal plan wherein God is using it first and foremost for his own glory, but for the good of Paul and for the spread of the gospel. Let us not think that Paul in any way is saying that it is because of his suffering that people are saved. Salvation comes through repentance and faith alone. It's not by Paul. Paul doesn't save anybody from the pits of hell. Christ alone does. However, Paul also knows that God has used his suffering for the spread of the gospel. How reassuring is that for Paul? How sustaining is it that he knows that God is using all things for his glory and for the good of those he has called? Paul isn't just suffering for suffering's sake. He's not just suffering for his own process. No, he's suffering for the sake of those who would be called unto salvation. 
for the elect, the chosen ones, the ones that had been chosen from before the foundation of the world, the ones that Christ says, I have called, I have chosen. And notice what he finished this line off with. He says that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Salvation comes with something oh so special to the believer. Eternal glory. Romans chapter 8 verses 16 and 17. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also, what? Glorified with him. Believer, you have something to look forward to. You thought it was just enough to be saved, and praise God it is. Thankfully, he's saving you from the wrath. But it's not, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. It says that you will enjoy eternal glory. You will be glorified with him. As we read from Romans earlier too, it says that who he predestined, right? He justified and he justified. He also glorified. He's brought them into his glory, that they are glorified with him. What a beautiful reality we have to look forward to. Friends, let us now turn our attention to these final three verses as we look at the security of God's promise. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For, we, for he cannot deny himself. The saying is trustworthy. Paul uses the same kind of attention-drawing phrase five times in the pastoral epistles. And the interesting thing is that we don't find it anywhere else in Scripture. It's only found in the pastoral epistles. It's like he's continuously calling Timothy and then Titus back to this trustworthy saying. And so I think it's probably, I mean, if I was to make some guess at why, it's because he's trying to get the attention of this minister of God's word to say, remember, what you're preaching is a trustworthy thing. The saying is true. But that echoes out for all of us believers. We all can look at God's word and know that it is true and it is a trustworthy saying. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Talking again in this section about being a good servant of Christ Jesus. Here we are at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11. And then in Titus chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The saying is trustworthy. The interesting part about it is the fact that this isn't stuff that Timothy didn't know. I, I, I appreciate that Paul, in his writing this, how the Lord has used this penmanship. Because he's like drawing us in. He's saying, I know you know this. Pay extra attention here. I know you're aware. Now listen up. It's comparable to what we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. He has this kind of rhythmic psalm-like, like a song that had been sung. And some have assumed that this also was a part of a psalm. It says, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we have died with him, we will also live with him can be taken two ways, right? We can think of both the spiritual and the physical deaths. The spiritual death, this glorious truth of Romans chapter 6, we were buried therefore with him, talking about Christ, 
by baptism into death in order that Jesus or just sorry, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. But also this can be pointing to the reality of just physical death. Paul, you have to think, he's sitting in a a cell awaiting his own execution. He's just pending his time, eating whatever little food he had, just trying to continue to survive as he writes these letters. Knowing that any moment a guard could come in, take him out to be executed. And so Paul probably has this on his mind. He's looking towards his own death. And he reminds Timothy that death is not the end for the believer. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. Death is not just a ceasing to exist, an end point in and of itself. Everyone will face something at the end of their lives. Every person will face something at the end of their lives. If you are a believer, you can have full assurance, as Paul says here, that you will be with Christ. If you have died with him, you will also live with him. However, if you are not a believer, you can be certain you will fall under the penalty and the wrath of God. And it will be poured out upon you with nothing for you to stand on. We get to our second line here in this this song. And he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Paul in this very section is reemphasizing the message of this whole letter. In so many ways. What is he talking about, right? He says, if we endure, he's talking about these persecutions, these hostilities, these struggles, these trials of various kinds. You could even say, enduring in the good times. How frequently are we to turn from God in the good times because we think, I'm fine, I really don't need God anymore. What a tragic reality, right? Because we end up on two spectrums. Everything goes awful and we blame God and we say, God, you're not here for me. Or we have everything right and everything's good and we say, I don't need you anymore. And he says, if we endure through these various trials, whatever they may be, we can be reassured that we will also reign with Christ. Believers, once again, we have a hope to look forward to. Eternal life with Christ, but not just that. We will reign with him. The Greek word here for reign suggests not just being in the presence of the king, not just being a part of the court, right? Not just a court gesture for for an instance, right? But possessing honor, reigning with the king in his kingdom. If you will, turn with me real quick to Luke chapter 19. We're going to look at this parable, and it points to just this reality of reigning with a king. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. The parable of the ten minas. Sure, many of you have heard this, and I'm just going to read it back for us. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was nearer to Jerusalem, and because they were supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into the far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then returned. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. And he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to them, and he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful and very little, you shall have authority, right? You will be reigning with me 
over ten cities. And the second came and said, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. You are to reign over five cities as a part of my kingdom. You are reigning with me over them. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone, that to everyone who has more will be given. But from those who has not, every, even what he has will be taken away. But as for the enemies of mine, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Friends, we get the reality that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will have the opportunity not just to be in the presence of God and in Christ forever, but we will reign with him. We will be, if we are good and faithful servants, as I know you will be, because the Lord in his working will make that a reality. Not because of anything that you can actually do, but because of the way that Christ works through his spirit. You will work for his glory. And what's the end goal? What's the end that we foresee to reign with the king? If we deny him, he will also deny us. The Greek verb here is in the future tense. It could be said something more like, if we deny him at some point in the future, possibly when the stakes are high, then he will also deny us. As we know, Timothy, like Paul, was experiencing regular, ongoing persecution. Paul knew there would come a time when the stakes would be so high, everything would be on the line. Even his very life would be on the line. And he says, if you deny him, he will deny you. However, let us not be confused into thinking that this would mean that Timothy or any professing believer lives their entire life as a Christian, comes to the high stakes point and denies Christ and then loses everything. No, the matter of the fact is, is if they deny him, they're saying he wasn't ever a believer, really. First John chapter two, right? They went out from us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So one name that appeared in several commentaries, and I'm sure may even pop into your own mind when you think of denial, is Peter. You say, well, then how do we understand Peter? Because... Paul says if we deny him, he will also deny us. But then we have Peter who then writes actual books in the New Testament that we have looked at together. That we study, that we use as a part of God's word. So what do we understand of him? We see that Peter seemed to fall into some temporary cowardice as Christ was going to be executed. Remember, Peter was asked about being a follower of this Christ. And three times he denies him. And then it says that he went out and he wept bitterly. The stakes were high. He realized it. He was put to the test and he failed. However, we see the restoration of Peter after he weeps bitterly, these tears of repentance. It sounds like he was saved, yet not fully sanctified, right? It appears that Peter's denial was a, a moment of failure but followed by true repentance, true desire to bring much glory to God. And we know then the ministry that happened through Peter. So the question still is, well, what do we do with that? How do we understand the reality of the question? If we deny him, he will deny us. Christ talks in Matthew chapter 10. He says, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Believers do not deny Christ. They stand firm. So how do we understand it? The only thing that we can see is that 
Peter did repent and believe. He did turn back to Christ and he cried out for mercy and grace. Friends, we know that there is a time that will come where we will be put to the test. Stand firm. For we we don't know what that means. We don't know if that will be the end. We are called to stand firm, to not deny him. There is those that will deny him. And they will deny him to the end. And the reality is that they had no real faith in him. While we don't fully understand what that means and we can't really say, oh, well, that one time when that guy denied him, he's no longer truly a believer. We don't know the heart, right? God knows the heart. But friends, I invite you to look inwardly. To look inside and to ask the question when put to the test, what will I do? What will I say? And if your answer is anything but I will stand for Christ, then you have some serious, serious thinking to do. You need to search deeply. Seek the Lord. Ask that he might save you and bring you to the place where you will never deny him. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He's meaning more than just being weak or unreliable. He's meaning more than just Peter in that time. He's pointing to the fact of not being saved. However, notice that second part. Christ, even though humankind can be faithless, Christ is faithful. John chapter 3, these famous words, right? Verse 16, but reading through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Christ is faithful to those who have been deemed the elect, as we saw earlier. However, he is also faithful to condemn those who are not. He will punish sinners. Christ goes with his word. Unlike us, who is so quick for our words to become useless and meaningless because we say one thing and do another, Christ is faithful. He will do everything that he has promised to do. He will save who he has called to be saved. He will condemn and punish those whom deserve it, which is all of us. He will live according to what he has said he will do. For he cannot deny himself. Christ must remain faithful. For if he fails to do so, he will be denying himself, which is just not feasible. And if that is the case, if that happens, then we have no Christ to rely on. Christ says of himself, turning back to Matthew chapter 12, getting to the end here. Matthew chapter 12. Starting in verse 22. Talking about this house divided, right? He says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. A kingdom cannot be divided. If Christ denies himself, or if he goes against his own very nature, being faithful, it's like denying himself. It's like splitting the kingdom up and it will perish. It will fall apart. Christ's utter and sure faithfulness is what Timothy and Paul and you and I all must be holding on to. That is what we need. As Hebrews 10 says, 
Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. So as we close, I want to follow in Paul's footsteps and draw your attention to Christ. Throughout the text today, we see that Paul is urging Timothy to remember Christ, risen from dead, the offspring of David, the Christ that when believed in, we can obtain the salvation that is in him with eternal glory. Indeed, the saying is trustworthy and true. Christ is faithful. And, we have to, and if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. However, if we deny him, he will indeed deny us. As we think on Christ, I want to just read this from Ligonier. It is an article asking the question of, who is Christ? And John Duncan says, in John chapter 8, Christ says, before Abraham was, I am. Colossians chapter 1, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth. In him all things hold together. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ was the very nature and form of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says that the Son was the exact representation of God's being. Titus chapter 2 refers to him as our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh, the only Savior of mankind, sent to redeem the souls of the lost with the authority of God himself. Being God himself. Friends, notice that ending. Jesus Christ is the only Savior of mankind. Without Christ, you shall surely perish and will suffer in all eternity, separated from God. Not out of his presence, but separated from him. Hebrews chapter 3, as it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. If you are not a believer here this morning, I invite you to consider these truths that Christ is the only means of salvation. There is only one way, only one. If you try to seek another, you shall surely perish. If you try to go down your own path, you shall surely perish. If you want to trust in your own ways, you shall perish. God has made it clear. His word has made it clear. Christ made it clear. Paul made it clear. Peter made it clear. John made it clear. Luke, Matthew, Mark, all made it clear. The Old Testament all points to the reality. Christ is the only means of salvation. Without him, you have no other option, no other choice. You will perish Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Let us close in prayer.